All right, tonight's teaching comes from Acts chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 10, and here we read, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement and what had happened to him. This is God's word. We continue moving through the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at Acts 1. And in Acts chapter 2, what we see is, at least at the beginning, Acts chapter 2 is the story of Pentecost. It's where the Holy Spirit of God comes down. Uh, 3,000 people are baptized into the Christian faith. It's the birth of the early Christian church. At the end of Acts chapter 2, however, we get arguably the best snapshot in the New Testament of who the early Christian church was and what they did. And it says they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, i.e. the Bible, to fellowshipping with one another, and to prayer with one another. And they lived in this like communal and harmonious and generous kind of way. And the combination of their testimony and their lifestyle was so persuasive that we're also told that the Lord was adding to their number each day those who were being saved. We get a summary there at the end of Acts 2, but Acts chapter 3 is essentially an illustration of that summary of Acts 2. Because in Acts chapter 3, what we get is Peter and John who are going to the temple and they find somebody who needs some help, a beggar uh, who is disabled, who is begging at the temple. And they help him, they heal him. This draws a lot of attention. It creates a platform by which they can give essentially like a law gospel sermon The Jewish religious leaders, the religious establishment, don't like it. They throw them in prison, but God in his providence and his goodness, he gets them out and he sends them moving forward. He keeps the church moving forward with a Christ-centered, countercultural lifestyle. Even as they experience tremendous opposition from the world, And in the entire process, God continues, God who is bigger than the rest of the world, continues to bless them. So what we have, again, at the beginning of this text, you have a disabled man who's begging at the temple. And he's at a specific gate called, our text calls it the beautiful gate. What that means is, so there's like nine gates that would have gone from the the court of the Gentiles into the temple proper area. And there was this gate, commentators say, usually the easternmost gate, Uh, which is at a top of a staircase, in all likelihood, that entered into the court of the women, and it was called the Beautiful Gate. By being the most eastern gate, this gate, which was made of really expensive bronze, probably when the sun rose, would have shone like strikingly beautifully off of it. So it's called the Beautiful Gate. And it's here where Peter and John find a guy who really needs some help, and he's asking them for this help. Now, I don't want to overstate this point, but I do want to make the point clear. In the ancient world, there's almost no record of beggars appearing at pagan temples, okay? 
There's lots of records of beggars appearing at the Jewish temple. What does that tell you? It tells you there's very clearly something that is different about the character of the God of the Jews. Because beggars don't appear at the pagan temples, they do appear, always appear at the Jewish temple. And God, throughout the history of his Old Testament people, was everybody knew he was commanding them, he was demanding of them that they show charity to the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, and the poor. So, interestingly enough, in the same way that beggars have always appeared at the Jewish temple, beggars have also, for what it's worth, always appeared around Christian churches. And we can debate what is the most productive or not most productive way to provide charity to those who are in in need in life. But what is really unarguably and non-debatable is the fact that humans historically have always looked to God's people to serve as a source of relief for their needs. Uh, I think it also then begs the question, if you are a church that nobody's ever showing up with any kinds of significant needs, uh, physical or otherwise, does the community actually look at you as a resource for relief or not? By the way, I know this is awkward. It's awkward in the sense that the text says Peter looked straight at the guy. He looked straight at the guy as did John. And Peter said, look at us. Now, here's what's awkward about that. That's an extraordinary statement. Do you understand how much energy our society puts in trying to not look at poor people? Do you know how hard we try to not look at human misery or things like that? I'm going to explain this on a macro level and a micro level. First of all, like micro level, I'm thankful to work on North Avenue. One of the things it means is when I come down from my house a little bit north of North Avenue and I turn left uh, on the exit on North Avenue to get there, there's usually a red light. And usually not only is there a red light, but there is a human being standing about six inches outside of my window, right? Today, I actually got a fist bump through the window Uh, as I was stopped on North Avenue. And sometimes I engage, and other times I look like I've never been more fascinated in my AC controls on my dashboard uh, with whatever I'm doing. But it's good for me either way. It's good for me. You know why? Because it's difficult to look at someone poor and perhaps homeless and look them in the eyes. It's difficult to look right at human misery. One of the main takeaways that I got from my wife and I traveled out to San Francisco back uh, in the fall. And we had heard a lot of things before we got to San Francisco, a lot of interesting stuff. And it's a beautiful place, beautiful location, beautiful city, everything. But one of the things that we did here and was, in fact, proven true to us, is there are homeless people on every street, every block in San Francisco. And what was really interesting to me is not that there were homeless people, but that the native San Franciscans all interacted with, including the homeless, like it's not really a thing. Like they just accepted the fact that some people are homeless, some people are not. In other words, the homeless were treated as though they had equal rights to everybody. Now, interestingly enough, when we were out at the pier, somebody also told us that the seals on the pier have equal rights to humans as well. So I'm not entirely sure what the entire social system is uh, at that point. But my point is this, to their credit, they were willing to look, so far as I can tell, at human misery and not just avoid it not just look away. And that's really difficult to do, including at a macro level as a society. As a society, we have always, especially today, structured our entire society so that we don't have to look at human misery in the sense that, look how many different forms of potential misery we outsource. 
In the 21st century, and I don't know if this is conscious or deliberate or whatever, but we've almost entirely outsourced our sick to hospitals, our dead to funeral homes, our elderly to care facilities, and our poor to the government. Like, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not trying to disparage that. I'm actually thankful that we have experts and resources like that. All I'm saying that is in prior generations in human history, they weren't able to outsource misery like that. They weren't able to outsource those who were in need. They had to stare, they had to regularly look at human suffering on a more regular kind of basis. I'm going to take this a step further. Even the concept of American like suburbia, like I want us just to think about this for a second because it comes from a place. It didn't just always exist. It came out of an issue. The concept came, so far as I can tell, historians will suggest it goes back to the Industrial Revolution, specifically in London, when during the Industrial Revolution, those who were in the wealthier middle class were able to purchase villas on the outskirts of town. Why? Because they still wanted to benefit from the resources of the city, but they also wanted to escape the squalid conditions of uh, the industrialized city. I am not saying that to disparage anybody who lives in the suburbs. I myself live in a very comfortable neighborhood. What I do want to say, however, is this. It's very easy when you don't consciously think about it. It is very easy to just do whatever your flesh intuitively wants and whatever the herd around you is doing. That's what animals do. They live by their instincts, their flesh, and whatever the herd is doing. Make no mistake, our flesh and our society absolutely wants to avoid human misery, not only our own, but other people's as much as possible. The only thing I'm challenging you to think about tonight is, should we? Should we? Or if, as we established last week, God is going to work his ministry in our lives through his people, maybe we actually have to walk into being in the presence of that more often. Peter and John, they look right at it. You notice everybody else is walking by right into the temple, and Peter and John, this guy's not calling out to them, he's calling out to anybody. And they stop, and they listen, and they say, no, you look at me. Here's specifically uh, what we have here. When Peter, he gets the man's attention, and he grabs him by the hand, and he starts to lift him, and we're told that instantaneously, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And not surprisingly, this guy actually clings to Peter and John for the next couple of days, which is actually going to prove instrumental in the fact that they get sort of released by the Sanhedrin when they're on trial the next day, like God is working this all together. But this guy now is, he is walking and he's jumping, he's praising, I'm guessing he's dancing. And all of that is absolutely attracting attention. Because fortunately, God ordained that this would happen at like one of the busiest times of the day, the hour of afternoon or evening prayer, which is about 3 p.m. And there's a large crowd there. And this guy is like famously disabled. He'd been there every day. He's a familiar face and everyone is dumbfounded by what has happened to him. What does this mean? And that's what launches into the the text that we read a couple minutes ago, which is our first lesson where he gives this sermon, says, this is God who is doing this not us. Before I leave the summary of this account, however, I want to say two more things about miracles real quick, which I think are important. Because number one, I try not to take for granted the fact that really on a week-in, week-out basis, we have a lot of different people who come who are either new to the Bible or new to church or new to Christianity in general. 
And I think whenever we talk about miracles like this, there's a level of sort of kind of quietly looking around to see, does everybody here buy that miracle stuff at face value, you know? Uh, and there's two things. My general response to that is, is twofold. Number one, first thing I would say is, if you believe in God at all, is it all inconsistent or unrealistic or unreasonable that that same God could intervene and interact with his creation? Like, if you're going to start with the assumption that God could exist, why would it be unreasonable that God could interact in special ways with his creation? Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing that I would say is, I do absolutely believe that people today are arguably more likely to believe in miracles than they were even 75 years ago. And sociologically, the reason for that is that 75 years ago, we were at the height of what was called the modernist era. So in the middle of the 20th century, you have a lot of people, especially in higher academics, who teach that the, the universe is closed. There is no God. Everything has essentially a naturalistic or materialistic explanation to it. Well, the problem for that was about 50 years ago, we started to learn a lot more about things like what's called chaos theory and string theory and just a broader understanding of the field of quantum mechanics. And this is not my area of expertise, but I do know enough to say this. Absolutely today, what we've come to the conclusion of is that classical physics is thoroughly insufficient to explain what we now know is happening at a subatomic level. And therefore, what that means is we've come to a point that is just, I think, so socially a more scientifically humble spot. Uh, we have more young adults who are willing to say things like, well, yeah, of course we don't know exactly how everything works than we did maybe even 75 years ago. And what that also then means is to start with a worldview that has some kind of a priori assertion against miracles. Like, I don't believe miracles could happen. Completely unsubstantiated. No one would do that. You don't do that. And we find more and more young adults aren't doing that. They're more receptive than people even years ago. The second thing that I want to say about miracles is even though uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable, I also will acknowledge that they're, they're kind of weird, right? They're by definition sort of anomalous. And the thing that I think makes it, some Christians miss, the common misconception is that miracles are not just big demonstrations of power. They're very specific types of demonstrations of power. So, for instance, when you study Jesus in the Gospels and the early disciples in Acts, what you'll notice is that when they work these miracles, they're very rarely doing miracles that are like parlor tricks. They're not making people levitate. They're not making temples disappear. They're not doing anything like that. When they work miracles, they're causing the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and bringing people back from death to life. In other words, they're almost always restorative. In fact, I've heard a lot of Christians, I've probably myself explained it this way at some points, and it's, it's just not quite right. The idea that God's miracles are interventions in the natural order, that's not quite the right way of saying it. Because God's miracles are actually a restoration to the order that God designed for the universe prior to sin. So sin functions like a disease that cripples the planet. But what miracles are, is there a way that God mercifully restores something to its original intention in a way that foreshadows what's going to happen in the coming kingdom? Miracles are part of God's way of saying that he is an enemy of human suffering. 
Miracles are part of God's way of explaining how those who, for instance, are perhaps in a wheelchair, you can be confident, you can be hopeful, because someday in the not-too-distant future, you will not only stand, but you will run, and you will dance, and you will jump. Okay? Now, what does all this mean? i got three applications for you here today, three different things that I want you to maybe change your thinking on. Uh, the first one is this, asking for what we think we need. First thing we need to see is this disabled man in the text, what is he asking for and what isn't he asking for? What he's not asking for in Lotus, he's not asking to be healed. He doesn't even think of that as an option when he's crying out to people for help, right? He's not asking for that. What he is asking for is money because understandably with money, he could get some food or some clothes or a place to stay at night or whatever else. And when Peter says to him, look, Gold and silver I do not have, and I can't give those things to you, but I have something else that I do want to give to you. Essentially, what Peter is saying is, you're looking for something that you think will make your life better, but I have something better to offer you than that. See, it's not that it's wrong for him to ask for money, no. It's that God wants him to ask for something much bigger and deeper than money. And what we learn from this in general is it teaches us that when we come to God very often, We are asking for surface-level answers to the problems we face when we should be asking for something much deeper, something much more substantial. If you were to do a little bit of an inventory of your prayers throughout your life, I can nearly guarantee that the vast majority of the prayers that you've prayed have been that God would add something to your life or God would take something away from your life that you think you needed to have in order for you to be happy. Maybe it was money, like this guy was asking for, right? Maybe, I mean, you could even take it deeper. Maybe uh, if you say, okay, he should have been asking for more instead of asking for $10. Should he be asking for $100? No, that's not the point. Like he should trust God. He should be asking for something different entirely. Even if he were asking that his legs would be healed, he would still need something deeper than that. You know why? Because I'm guessing even after this guy's legs were miraculously restored, do you think he was perfectly happy for the rest of his life? I think he probably thought before he was cured, if my legs only worked, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. And then his legs were cured, and he'd probably give it a month. And I think, you know, he's probably grateful. I'm not saying he's not grateful for the rest of his life. I'm sure he's grateful. I'm saying this life is so filled with hardship, evidenced by the fact that it ends in death, that, like, of course he's going to face more opposition. Of course he needs something bigger than just for his legs to work. What God is teaching us here is we typically come to God asking for something far more superficially than we should, when in reality, we should be asking for more from God, specifically more of God. I even noticed this when people first start coming to church. I've noticed this being a pastor for many years. You'll notice when people first start showing up at a church, it's almost never because, Pastor, I have so many sins and I just desperately need great forgiveness from God and uh, to be assured of my salvation. Almost no one who starts coming to church says that. When they first start coming to church, especially when you're a young Christian, what they say are things like, I am overwhelmed by sadness and I need some encouragement. Uh, My marriage is practically broken and this is an effort to somehow fix it, provide some stability. Uh, I feel extraordinarily lonely in life and I need to find some kind of meaning or purpose or encouragement. All of those things are good things. I'm not disparaging those things. And the church, being in church, can offer all of those things. What ends up happening invariably, though, is the longer someone is in church, what they start to realize is, oh, what I really needed all along 
with salvation. And really, the reason for that is because sin is the problem underneath all the other problems that potentially exist in life. By the way, this text, I also want you to see, remember Luke wrote Luke's gospel. Luke also writes the book of Acts. There's some extraordinary similarities, and almost every commentator will tell you what he writes right here for Peter and John, it's almost the exact same lesson that we learn in Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, there's a story where a paralyzed man is brought by his friends and lowered through the roof of a building. He gets, descends down in front of Jesus, and you remember what Jesus first says to the guy? Your sins are forgiven. And everybody there is a little offended. They're offended for different reasons, but they're all a little offended because that's not what they were expecting. See, they were coming to him not to get his sins forgiven. They were coming for, to him to get him healed from his paralysis. But Jesus says, okay, so that you understand, I have the power to do even something bigger than that. I'm going to cure you right now on the spot. What's the lesson? We typically come to God asking for help with surface needs. God typically wants to answer us by giving us something even deeper than what we're asking for. Let that influence your prayer life moving forward, okay? Second point, the vulnerable miracle worker. So not only does Jesus seek for us as recipients to desire something greater in what he does in our lives, but he also seeks for us to see in his miracles something even greater. It's worth mentioning, I don't think I've said this yet, this is the first miracle performed by God through the church after the resurrection, so that means there's something sort of prototypical about it. But actually, in all of the miracles recorded for us, what you got to see is actually, at a deeper level, they're pictures of salvation. You know what I mean by pictures of salvation? The miracles themselves actually teach us on a deeper level the gospel. Why? This guy is lame from birth. Not a single human is capable of walking with God or walking according to God's will from birth on their own. This guy is poor. Not a single human is able to pay off the immense debt that we owe to God, paying for all of our sins. This guy is positioned outside of the temple. Every single human being for our sins deserves to be at a distance and experience separation from God. This guy, he's healed immediately by a mediator who touches him with the grace of God. This guy is a man that gives public evidence of what God has done for him by praising God and identifying publicly with God's people. What we have in this whole thing, it's just an image of salvation. The miracles are, in a bigger way, images of God's grace and salvation. What they also then are, and you maybe have never seen this before, but they're demonstrations of the sacrifice of the miracle worker. So in order for a miracle worker to work miracles, it almost always requires them to become vulnerable to do so. Here's what I mean. Peter and John, let's start here. When they work this miracle, what happens to them? There's a couple different ways of answering that, but I think the simple way of answering it, the, the worldly way of answering it, is they get thrown in jail. After this, we read this in the first lesson, they get tossed in jail for working this miracle, Okay. In order for them to be a blessing to another, in order for them to work the miracle, they had to make themselves vulnerable. This is the exact same way it works in Jesus' ministry. A couple months ago, we looked at a story from Mark's gospel. It's the story of a, a woman. It's actually like embedded into another bigger story, but it's a woman who's been bleeding for many years and she pushes through a crowd and she pushes through to touch Jesus' cloak. And immediately when she touches his cloak, she's healed. Remember that story? Remember what Jesus says when she gets healed? 
he stops as they're walking. He says, I just felt power go out from me. Right? I blessed somebody else, but if power is going out of you, that by definition is making you a little bit weaker. In order for Jesus to bless that woman, he had to, in a sense, become more vulnerable. Also, when Jesus works his other miracles, when he takes Jairus' daughter and raises her back to life, he does it in that upstairs room, kind of private. And what does he tell the parents immediately after that? Don't tell anybody about this. He does that with a lot of miracles. Don't tell anybody about this. Some of you have asked me before, why would they not tell about the miracles that they perform? Uh, well, we learn why. If you look at another similar miracle, when he raises his friend Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11, there's a lot of spectators there. And what do some of the spectators do? They immediately go to the Pharisees. And you know what we read right after that? The Pharisees from that day on plotted to take his life. That sort of public exposure made him completely vulnerable. When God restores the world to the way it's supposed to be, the evil forces of this world don't much like it. It makes anybody who God is working through somewhat vulnerable. You know what the ultimate example of this is in Scripture? It's our Savior himself. The ultimate example of vulnerability is our Savior at his cross because first he comes into the world, and when he comes into the world, remember, he doesn't come in any kind of grand way, but he comes in as a baby. He limits himself down in time and space. He forfeits his power. He makes himself as weak and as vulnerable as a baby. And when he's done living a perfect life that we couldn't live in our place as our substitute, then he goes to the cross. Why? By making himself ultimately weak, he's performing the ultimate miracle, ushering in salvation for sinners. The God of the entire universe loved you so much that he chose to make himself vulnerable enough to die and go through hell to work the miracle of your salvation. That's extraordinary love. And actually, I would go as far as to say, I don't think there's a, such a thing as loving someone in a godly way that doesn't make you vulnerable. And actually, I'm going to take it even one step further. For you to receive the good stuff that Jesus won for you on the cross, for, in other words, for you to experience the miracle of faith, guess what it also requires? It also requires for you yourself to become vulnerable. In other words, you have to repent of your sins. You have to lower yourself in weakness. You have to admit that you're wrong. You have to forfeit control. You have to accept your total dependence on him. And then, only then, after that, can the resurrection power of Jesus Christ come into your life. You see what's happening here? Salvation comes into our lives by God making himself vulnerable. And faith comes into our lives only after we have been made vulnerable. This is the foolishness of the cross that the Apostle Paul talks about. It's victory through weakness. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. And that brings us to the last principle here because, look, if God brings salvation into your life and gifts it to you by making himself vulnerable, and if you receive that by God working and making you humble and making yourself vulnerable and weak, how do you think God is going to get his grace, power, and restoration into the life of somebody else? It's not going to come through your victories. It's not going to come through your strengths. It's going to come through your crosses. God got his power into your life through his cross. He's going to get his power into the life of somebody else through your cross. 
Now, what does that look like? You know, no matter how talented, how wealthy, how powerful you are, you're never going to be a blessing to the world because you're not going to be, you're not going to be humble. If you have all those things but you're not humble, you're never going to be a blessing to the world. But if you are humbled and you confess your personal weakness, you confess your need of a Savior, that's when God can use you as his minister. Let me give you two ways that he does this, and then we're going to close, close out, okay? Two quick examples. One, uh, just kind of a personal one. I had a friend, an old friend, call me this past week for advice. And very often when people ask me for advice, it was advice for working with a close friend of his that I didn't know. And he said, okay, here's the problem. And the problem was essentially a perfect storm of a couple different things from the past couple of years. So this guy, his friend, has a very intense, very stressful job. Uh, He just changed locations for where he works, and this all just happened during COVID. So the combination of those three things, the stress of COVID, the stress of an intense job, and the stress of relocating your job was big. So that's one thing. Another thing is, okay, so he's pulled away from his home, which means he's also pulled away from his support system, his friends, and his church. The third thing is that during COVID, he never actually got acclimated into a new church, which meant that he was largely apart from hearing God's word regularly and God's people regularly for several years. All of that, not completely surprisingly, led to some really, really difficult uh, emotional, psychological, mental health problems that were also then negatively impacting his marriage. And so my friend asked me, when people typically ask for advice like this, they would say, okay, well, what can I say to him or what scripture should I share with them? And, you know, that's always a good question, but there's not like a silver bullet kind of thing. What I say is this, and he, my friend had agreed to do this. He's meeting with him every week for Bible study, and they're studying through the book of Romans, one chapter at a time. I said, when you trust that process, three transformative things will happen. Here's what they are. Number one, when that guy who is hurting so severely realizes that there's somebody in his life who loves him enough to listen compassionately and non-judgmentally, that will bring healing. Every human being, by God's design, the design of a triune God who is functionally a relationship unto himself, is therefore interdependent and needs other human beings who listen to us compassionately and non-judgmentally. The second thing that you're blessing this guy with by meeting with him regularly is you're allowing him to articulate the difficult emotions that he currently has going on inside of him. This is the power of modern counseling. It's rarely about the genius of the counselor. It's almost always about the articulation of the sufferer because when you have these emotions that are overwhelming on the inside, when you can get to the point where you can articulate them through words, when you can label them, look, if you get to name something in life, you get some power over it. So when you can name your own emotions, it doesn't make all the chaotic emotions go away. It gives you a power to help manage those emotions. That's two things. And the third thing, not surprisingly, by being in God's word, this guy is going to regularly, weekly start hearing promises from God that he hasn't been hearing for a couple years. Things like, you know what? God loves you. God forgives you. God is in control. And God will take whatever you're currently facing and work it out for good. And that is the type of thing that absolutely will infuse some optimism into somebody's life against the mayhem that they're currently experiencing. Now, I don't often make, like, guarantees. I guarantee you, and I guaranteed this guy, if you trust this process, I guarantee this guy is going to become healthier and he's going to feel better. Now, is that a miracle? I don't know if I'd categorize that as a miracle. 
What I do know it is, is it's absolutely a sign that God's word, working through God's people, has the ability to bring healing into hurting lives. It happens all the time, and it's one of the ways that God uses his church. That's an individual level. Let me give you a macro on a a church-wide congregational level. Let's just go back to the early Christian church real quick. Some of you have heard me say before, this is the type of thing that we just gloss over in society. If you've never thought about it before, have you ever noticed that we name all our hospitals things like St. Luke's, St. Joseph's, St. Mary's, Samaritan, stuff like that? Why is that? Did you know that the Christian church invented the hospital? Do you know why the Christian church invented the hospital? It wasn't to make money. It was long before hospitals were really big business. They were there for free. Well, why on earth would anybody take care of sick people that they weren't even related to for free? Well, you have to ask yourself, what made the early Christians decide to willfully nurse people back to health at the cost of their own lives? There's a a passage that's become really helpful for me in understanding this. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul writes, He was crucified, Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we who are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. The early Christians were very, very, very literal about their willingness to make themselves weak in order to bring the healing power of Jesus Christ into the lives of the hurting around them. And so you have, for instance, people like Cyprian of Carthage in the second great plague of the Roman Empire, which is about 260 AD. It's actually called the Great Plague of Cyprian after the Cyprian of Carthage, who was extraordinarily influential in inspiring believers to take care of the sick at cost to himself. And when it close like this, his fellow leader in ministry, a guy by the name of Dionysius, wrote this down. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. You notice it doesn't say they took care of the sick and everybody got better and then they went home. They took care of the sick, they got sick themselves, and they died happy to do so. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way equal to martyrdom. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, miracle or not, we're ready for you to work through us individually, and congregationally. In doing so, may your name be praised. Amen.
This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.